0: Constant Investor will be aware that for a while now, I've been on about the two great puzzles of economics at the moment. Why are wages growth and inflation so low, when unemployment is also low? And why isn't productivity growing when we're in the middle of a technology revolution? Well, actually, I think it's just one puzzle, really. The question about wages and inflation is easy. They're low because people have lost their bargaining power, partly because unions are dead and partly because the unemployment statistics are rubbish. People are underemployed. But low productivity growth? Now there's a real conundrum. And I must say it's pretty hard to find a market economist, as opposed to an academic one, prepared to tear themselves away from central bank watching and predicting interest rates to think about these big issues. And that's why I was so taken with a recent report by HSBC's Global Chief Economist, Janet Henry, entitled The Wage Conundrum. She starts off on wages but ends up up to her elbows in technology. And it's very interesting. So I tracked her down in London for a Spotlight interview and started by asking her to set out some facts about wages growth around the world.
1: Well, I think it's not just that wage growth is weak. It's been weak for several years. It's this combination of very, very low unemployment rates and still quite weak wage growth. So this historical relationship, when people always talked about an economy reaching full employment. We've got unemployment below 3% in Japan. We've got unemployment at only about 4.5% in the US or the UK. And still, we're not seeing any signs um, of wage growth. So you've still only got it running at about 2.5% in the US, about 2% in the UK. And by this stage, when we're at full employment, normally you would expect wage growth to be running at more like 3.5% or so.
0: It's the opposite of stagflation, isn't it?
1: Well, to some degree in that actually global growth has been quite synchronized over the course of the last year or so it's been the most synchronized upturn with all regions of the world participating in it for the last year or so and the the surprise has been that we haven't seen much in the way of inflation follow through more broadly particularly over the course of the last few months when oil prices have generally we've seen the rise in oil prices and we've more recently seen some stabilization and despite this tightening the labour market, we're still not seeing much in the way of pricing power return to um, to workers effectively. So to some degree, it, it is the opposite. We have real growth, but we don't have much in the way of inflation.
0: And what interested me about your report was that you are actually attributing the low wage growth to technology. Perhaps you could explain that to us.
1: Well, I think there are a number of factors. You know, I think some wage growth has been generally disappointing since about 2010, I would argue. So some of the reasons that have been weighing on wage growth for the last five years or so are, to some degree, a legacy of the financial crisis but also a function of a number of other structural factors. So, you know, since the financial crisis, inflation has been very low. That's starting to feed through into low inflation expectations. That feeds through into wage setting behavior, particularly um, if people have been unemployed for quite a long time or are fearful of unemployment is older workers coming back into the labour force. This has been an Anglo-Saxon trend for several decades. If you look at the US in particular, there's a lot of over 65s staying in the labour market. But it seems more recently, since the crisis, to have become more of a European phenomenon, even in the likes of France and Germany. So those factors, I think, are going to continue to weigh on wage growth. But the other point that you rightly make is, is about technology. This, again, has been underway for some time but it seems to have accelerated um, since the financial crisis. And this is leading to some polarisation in labour markets. We've got some parts of the labour market where um, you've got some already quite highly paid, highly skilled, highly sought-after individuals. They tend to get higher pay rises, but a lot of the middle-skilled workers are being displaced to some degree, by increased automation and are starting to compete for some of the lower-skilled jobs. If you've got more people competing for some of the lower-skilled jobs, that increased competition, particularly with the gig economy, is making it more difficult for those those workers to fight for for larger pay rises. So you've got competition in labour markets that have been encouraged by technological advancement, and you've also got a lot more transparency on pricing that's feeding through to about increased competition on the pricing front for companies, making it even more likely that they're going to try to squeeze labour costs.
0: And the thing that central banks have been puzzling over, including the Fed and the Australian Central Bank last week, is the low growth in productivity, which to some extent they're attributing to, they're saying is a cause, one of the causes of lower wage growth. You're saying that the productivity benefits of this round of technology seem to be concentrated in fewer sectors. Robert Gordon also said that this sort of technology advance is not very meaningful or somewhat incremental and not as big a deal as previous ones. Do you go along with that?
1: This is true. I mean, we've had various periods of rapid technological transformation over the past several hundred years. And, you know, we can argue about whether the um, increased usage of of the Internet and and all the other technological advancements in the past generation, how they compare with the railways or the invention of electricity. But I think actually, if we look at the recovery that we've seen since the global financial crisis, it's been a very job rich recovery even though growth hasn't been particularly spectacular so the implication is that that labor productivity growth has been low and if you look at you know any of the major economies in the developed world there is no doubt that labor productivity growth has been quite low but i don't think that's all a technology story actually a big part of the weakness of labour productivity has been just a lack of investment spending more broadly. And I think this is where the issue of capital deepening um, comes in. If you you look throughout the late 1990s or in the pre-crisis period, what you tended to have was the capital stock, the size of the capital stock, the amount of machinery and equipment and infrastructure in a country was persistently rising relative to employment. But post-crisis, particularly if companies are cautious about the outlook for future demand or their pricing power, and labour has been quite cheap, what they've tended to do is employ many more workers and wait to see whether the demand materialises rather than to continue to invest. So I think even if we just saw a bigger acceleration in investment spending growth, we would tend to see more in the way of labour productivity. But the other point you make is absolutely right. We did some work looking at what happened in the late 19. Nineties with the last five years looking at productivity growth on a sector-by-sector sector basis. And it did tend to be that at this time around, it's been the smaller employment sectors like information, which has seen some of the most rapid productivity growth. Whereas in the late 1990s, the sector that had the most rapid labour productivity growth was actually the manufacturing sector and other large employment sectors.
0: You pointed out that time and again, And even before the Industrial Revolution, um, technology advances end up creating more jobs than they replace. But do you think that there's more of a skills problem this time so that there's a lot of workers who can't use the new equipment and technology properly and that that's a factor with low productivity growth as well?
1: I think that that is an additional factor. I mean, it's interesting the point that rapid technological transformation doesn't inhibit an aggregate kind of job creation. And we've seen that this time around. It's just it creates a different type of jobs. Some of those jobs can only be facilitated by the growth of technology. So if we think about a lot of the, you know, the, the people make a living posting videos on YouTube, the extent to which the gig economy has only been able to emerge, if we're talking about food delivery and drivers or Uber drivers, et cetera, those jobs have only been able to appear because of technology. So I think it it does lead to to different changes um, in the emergence of jobs. But on the point about the skills mismatch, it's interesting. If you look at any surveys from most countries and ask companies what's their biggest challenge in labor markets, nearly all of them say there is a skills shortage. But a lot of those skills shortages are in specific sectors. So over time, some of these skills shortages should disappear because inevitably and where there is most demand for employment is in some of the more high-tech sectors having, you know, very well developed IT-related skills, ability to use the more advanced computing facilities, etc. Then it's more likely that younger generations who've grown up in this kind of, what we call a digital native backdrop, they are more likely to deliver on where we see some of these skills shortages coming through. But also so governments can do their bit as well because they can provide, help provide ongoing training and skills and encourage companies to do likewise to address the skilled mismatches in that way.
0: You also write about the role of technology in widening inequality and you talk about wage dispersion and so on. Do, do you think that this will eventually correct itself or that something will have to be done about it?
1: Well, what this does point to is still uh, the idea that you've got some parts of the population which do have some that already tend to be amongst the higher earning sectors. They are in more demand. Um, they are tending to get higher pay rises than some of the lower skilled jobs where it's easier for workers to compete for those jobs and you get lower wage growth. So it is leading to this divergence in wage growth and most likely a continuation of the growing income inequality. So to some degree, the pie is growing in that more and more people are employed and unemployment rates in more countries are now at record lows. But it is quite likely that we will probably have to see more in the way of government policies to address this growing income inequality. And, you know, I think that there is growing evidence of the extent to which governments are under pressure to address this coming through in Europe to a large degree. So that's why we're hearing all these policy experiments regarding universal basic income. There's an experiment underway in Finland. Hawaii has just set up a working group to investigate the possibility of universal basic income, and they've specifically cited the impact of technology replacing certain workers' jobs. So, you know, this kind of policy would be that people are giving given a certain minimum income, irrespective of whether they're working at all. But also other policies, that, you know, the possibility of negative income tax rates or increases in minimum wages, or what we have in the, in the UK is a nationwide living wage. So workers over 65, they tend to earn more than the, well, they're required to earn more than your you know, actual minimum wage. So I think we are already seeing a shift in government policies towards addressing um, this ongoing widening of income inequality.
0: What do you think of all that?
1: I think it is an inevitable consequence of what's happening around the world, particularly in those countries where they have a more advanced kind of social model. And I think also we need to think about the implications for for longer term growth, because you know, a lot of the monetary policies that have been delivered in the wake of the financial crisis, which have tended to push up the value of financial assets more than they pushed up wage growth, have tended to benefit some of the same people that are benefiting from higher wage growth. But a lot of those people don't have a particularly high marginal propensity to consume. Whereas actually some of the, the lower earners who perhaps, you know, have a much higher marginal propensity to consume, Um, If they see an increase in their minimum wages or in their, you know, get some kind of income boost in a way that that supports their income levels, they are more likely to spend all of that additional income or a much larger share of it. So that can support growth to a larger degree. And obviously, these policies need to be delivered in a way that don't distort labour markets or lead to different incentives that discourage people from working and need to be supported by ongoing skills training and development. But I think it is a world where we're most likely to expect more from governments to address some of these issues rather than rely solely on monetary policy um, to raise inflation and get closer to meeting their inflation objectives in the coming years.
0: Yeah, but the governments haven't really been stepping up at all. I mean, I just the the central banks of the world must be terribly frustrated because, as you point out, they've got a a synchronised global recovery, but they are having to be terribly cautious about removing monetary support because, I guess, because they haven't got the support they need from governments.
1: Well, I think a lot of the factors driving inflation, as I alluded to, even when I was talking about the, the other factors driving wage growth, are demographic in nature. And that is still more likely to be a a more disinflationary environment than when populations were growing very, very rapidly. And central banks have inflation targets, which for most central banks are in the kind of 2% range, and they are struggling to meet this. And you know, we hear that from the ECB in particular. You know, the ECB publishes, European Central Bank publishes forecasts for inflation out to 2019, and they are basically saying that even in 2019. Inflation is only going to be 1.6%. So heading in that general direction, um, but even further down the road, it's suggesting that they are, are going to miss it. So already they are calling on governments to do their bit to undertake more in the way of structural reforms in a way that raises growth potential. Most people would say that potential growth in Europe is only about 1%, even though currently it's growing well above that. But they can deliver, if they can deliver more in the way of structural reform, it might raise long term growth potential through raising productivity growth, which might offset some of the shrinking population. So you've got a demographic drag. So it's even more important that they deliver policies to boost productivity, both through investment spending and skills um, and other areas of training development, as as well as addressing the redistributive element from this wage diversion. So I don't think we've seen the end of the pressure on governments, even if we see an ongoing frustration at which the pace at which they deliver it.
0: Just finally, I mean, what's your forecast now for both US and European growth?
1: Well, for European growth, we see growth still. Well, this year is probably going to be better um, than next year. But we see growth for the euro area. We see it at about 1.7 and for the US about 2.3. So although growth in the sorry, the eurozone were 1.9 for 2017 um, and the US were at 2.3 and the eurozone, we see some moderation next year, but it's still better than it's been in the post-crisis period. And in the US, we see growth more or less um, unchanged. A lot there will depend on how much of a fiscal stimulus we see coming through. It's a fall in 2018. So it's, still relatively mediocre, even if it is still um, above potential. We don't seem to be set to be going back to the pre-crisis pace of growth.
0: Well, I really appreciate your time, Janet. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was Janet Henry, Global Chief Economist of HSBC.